This is a web of corporate law written by the corporations and for the corporations. And if this is allowed to be put into place, it's going to be a multi-generational effort to correct this mistake. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Lori Wallach, Jim Hightower, the Tom Hartman Program, The Majority Report, and Kevin Zeese. Lori uh, Wallach is the reason that we almost defeated Fast Track and that we can defeat the TPP. She's the director of Public uh, Citizens Global Trade Watch. You might have read about her in the New York Times or several other places. But Wall Street Journal called her trade debates guerrilla warrior. The, the fights that have happened have happened because of my colleagues here, because our colleagues all around the world in the same fight because of all of you. And that is actually the story of how we're going to stop the TPP, which is totally doable, actually. The one thing about that agreement, especially now that we've actually seen the text and we can see how really heinous it is, is it's a major overreach. It is so beyond the pale that actually we have the ability to put together the biggest coalition ever because almost every goal, not just of progressive people, but of people who would not even identify themselves on the political spectrum, but who just care about having a decent standard of living and having a good job, who care about making sure their kids' food is safe, who have a granny who has medicine and it's expensive, who have a notion, whether conservative or progressive, that they should make the decisions that affect our lives and those shouldn't be sent away to some unaccountable system. All of those goals and values are just kind of American values, but frankly, they're the values of the most of the people in the other countries in the TPP. Those values are all insulted, trampled, ripped to smithereens in this agreement. And in a very systematic way, it is a handful of very large corporate interests that would benefit from this agreement against all of us. And that is the scariest thing about this agreement, but that is also the power we have to win. So part of what I'm going to talk about, about what's in the agreement, I'm going to talk about in the context of how all of us can be helping to educate other people. There are two pieces of business about how we're going to stop the TPP. There is a very specific set of members of Congress who are going to make that decision. The work done across this country almost meant fast track was defeated. It's a very close vote. There are very few votes that have to be turned, and there's no TPP. So there's a very specific list of members in the House of Representatives who are going to have to vote no. Then there is making sure we get the public to understand what the TPP means as far as the disaster going forward so those members of Congress feel the necessity to do that thing, vote against it. And that's a much broader public education campaign. And so whether or not you have, you live in the district of one of the targeted members of Congress in New York, we all need desperately to educate our colleagues, our friends, our families, our enemies, our neighbors, Anyone we run into, we can think of a way to bring it up because this really is one of those moments where it's kind of a point of no return. If we go down that TPP road, it is, without exaggeration, a very scary and bad place that is going to be very hard to get back from. So why do I say that? This is an agreement that for seven plus years has been negotiated in secrecy with more than 500 official trade advisors representing corporations. In that time, we, the public, as well as the press, and most of the time Congress, that has constitutional authority over trade, though that's not mainly what this agreement's about, have been locked out. As a result, we have a 30-chapter agreement that has 1,200 pages of law, plus another 5,000 pages of details, exceptions, and schedules of commitments that, of those 30 chapters, six of them have anything to do with trade. All those other chapters basically rewrite wide swaths of our domestic laws, the things that we think we decide in city councils and state legislatures and Congress and our courts domestically. And this set of rules would be put into place in a sort of slow motion coup d'etat via trade agreement. Because you know all smart people are for free trade. But that's not what the TPP 
is. It's a delivery mechanism for an entirely different agenda that is not good for people or the planet. And why do I say that? We knew from leaks already that number one, the TPP will offshore more American jobs. How can I say that with certainty? Because the tax leak that showed, it's still there, we have a final tax now, but early on already was agreed, the investment rules that incentivize offshoring. They make it cheaper and easier to relocate jobs from the United States and other countries where generations of folks have struggled to have higher wages, to have the worker safety and environmental standards, and take them to places where people don't have those rights, where wages are low. And in the case of the TPP, we have the low-wage alternative for offshoring to China, Vietnam. So number two, the TPP will bring down American wages. So a whole batch of economists, including many of those who supported NAFTA, who will just fess up and say that. Why? It's basic market economics. We're going to have Americans directly competing with workers in Vietnam who make 65 cents an hour. 65 cents an hour. And with those investment rules, it's cheap, it's safe, it's actually subsidized if the U.S. firms move the jobs there. So you saw what happened during NAFTA. In Mexico, wages were about $10, $12 a day. So this is half the China wage. The third thing we know is we're going to get flooded with unsafe imported food. Why do we know that? Because actually the trade representative admitted that they were putting into place new rules to allow imports of food that didn't meet our domestic standards. And this is a very big deal with the TPP because amongst the countries are Malaysia and Vietnam, who are some of the biggest importers of shrimp. These are farmed shrimp. These are shrimp that are farmed in conditions that you really would not find sanitary or safe. And because, among other things, human and animal waste is used to fertilize the ponds, then tons of antibiotics are chucked in afterwards. So you basically have antibiotic marinated poop shrimp. There's just no other way to put it. And right now, we stop a lot of that. Only 1% of the shrimp is inspected coming into the U.S. It's disgusting but true, but they sample according to where their troubles. And Vietnam and Malaysia get way oversampled, except the TPP has a provision saying you can challenge the sampling decisions of border inspection. It's unfair because you're discriminating against a country. Well, you discriminate against the ones that have a problem. That's how you use the resources. Ixnay under TPP. Bon appetit. The fourth thing that we know is that the TPP will raise our medicine prices. There have been leaks of that chapter on patents, but now we have finals on both patents and a, and a provision that would allow challenges to Medicare bulk purchasing and, and, and formulary pricing. So the patent chapter basically even rolls back some of the reforms that George Bush made during, under duress from the Democrats in Congress for his last trade agreements. It would allow monopoly extensions for what is called evergreening. So like, for instance, you can get a 20-year monopoly right to sell a medicine and charge whatever the hell you want. But then when that 20 years is up, you get generic competition. As we all know, price goes way down. Except under TPP, every signatory country has to do things like have a new 20-year monopoly for a second use. So like, here's just my favorite example. You know, Viagra was made as a hair-growing tonic. It had that other effect that they found out later by accident. So you would have 40 years of monopoly, say, on that drug. You got the hair version, and then if you don't find out about the other use for another 20 years, you get another 20 years. It's the same chemical compound. It's doubling the length. As well, new exclusivity on the cutting-edge biologic drugs. The cutting-edge drugs are actually really life-saving potential cures for cancer already ridiculously expensive. Many of the countries in TPP have no exclusivity rules. This would have at least five years, maybe eight, where again, there'd be no competition, prices would be sky high. These are provisions that are gonna kill people. In the developing country, TPP members, these are provisions that will kill people. They have access to medicine now, they will not in the future, this is a choice. In our country, what it means, those provisions, but also the rules that allow the pharmaceutical companies to challenge the formulary, the purchasing decisions of Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera, means higher prices, more people in this country not able to get access to medicine, and also unneeded expenditures of government money that should go into building infrastructure, creating hospitals, creating jobs here, taking care of the environment. Instead, we'll be giving it to the pharmaceutical companies through the various government programs that provide medicine to elderly and the needy. 
And if all of that weren't enough, we know that the TPP includes countries with notoriously horrible human rights practices. So you've got Brunei, where in three years, when the law is fully implemented that was adopted a year and a half ago, there will, it will be the law to stone LGBTQ individuals. Yes, gay people would get stoned, as would single mothers and adulterers. And you have Malaysia, which is one of the worst traffickers in human beings, modern-day slavery, in the world. And we all have seen the horrible exposés of the slave camps in the jungle, um, particularly focusing on refugees from Myanmar. And you have, in this mix, absolutely no human rights standards. So sadly, peculiarly, perversely, the administration says, this is a 21st century agreement. But you know something? The Washington Post did us all a great service. They made the entire text word searchable. So search the word climate. That's a damn 21st century problem. Does not show up in this agreement. Seriously, does not show up. There are rules that would forbid us from ever banning the export of liquid natural gas or managing a lot of our energies, energy policies, but the word climate doesn't appear. The word human rights does not appear. And in addition, we have in many ways an agreement that's worse perversely than the previous agreements that Bush had negotiated. Not just is the intellectual property chapter a rollback, but also the environment chapter whacks seven of the eight agreements that provide the environmental standards for the enforcement of standards on the environment in the environmental standards chapter, which is to say there were eight of these agreements that were enforceable. Now, there will be one that is enforceable. That is the standard that theoretically is the environmental standard the agreement is supposed to hold countries to. How that happened, unclear. But all of the new conservation standards are being touted. The standard there is countries shall endeavor to combat. Endeavor to combat means for instance, what's the exact language for the wildlife provision? Endeavor to combat means if you put up a poster saying, do not trade in medicinal animal parts, you have endeavored to combat. It does not ban the trade in these goods. It does not ban the particular practices. And then, believe it or not, there are new rules that would limit internet freedom and roll back our rights to use the internet without interference, but also without basically having governments forced to be internet cops and shut us down, knock us out. These were not in past agreements. And if all that weren't enough, shockingly, they expanded the investor state dispute, dispute settlement system, the system that lets individual corporations be elevated to the same level as an entire sovereign government, skirt domestic courts and laws, and sue our governments in front of extrajudicial tribunals staffed by three private sector attorneys who rotate between being the judge <clears throat> and representing the corporations attacking the governments. These tribunals under the TPP still have no conflict of interest rules, still allow the rotating, still have no limits on how much taxpayer money can be ordered to compensate said companies. And if all that weren't enough, 9,200 additional corporations would be explicitly authorized to use the investor state system against the U.S. Because up until now, our trade agreements with investor state have been with developing countries who don't have a lot of investors here. All of the Japanese and Australian and other companies, of which there are almost 10,000, almost as many as we right now face liability under investor state in one fell swoop, would be added. And these are big companies, including about 10 of the world's 30 largest banks, which gets to the latest thing. They expanded investor state to allow attacks on financial stability measures. Yes, after the global financial crisis, one of the places where TPP is worse than any past agreement is in opening an entire box of Pandora's on our financial stability laws. Now, that everyone is unhappy, mortified, infuriated, and otherwise ready to do something about this, let me just conclude by saying that grim reality is only ours if Congress approves that very, very bad agreement. And that can only happen if we all don't do our job. Because literally, this is an agreement that if people are aware of what's in there, in black and white, not made up, and what it means for their lives and their futures, we will build a majority in Congress against the reason I say if Congress doesn't go for it, literally the agreements, terms, and accessions say if the U.S. and Japan don't approve it, the thing tanks. So we have in our hands, and frankly our brothers and sisters in the other TPP countries now relying on us, because it ain't happening in Japan. It's a parliamentary system. They do not have the ability we do 
to organize a member of Congress one by one to stand up and vote their constituent against the president. Their prime minister is the majority party in the parliament. They're not stopping it. It's on us. So if Congress, the House, a majority, we do our work, says no, we can stop the TPP future, and it's on us. This 90 days notice everyone heard about is the right to sign it. The thing can be signed as of the first week of February, but they will only push for a vote if they think they have the vote. So if we do our work now, when the administration is looking to lock down the yes votes, we have to now make a fuss, now get commitments for our members of Congress to vote no, we will make sure, actually, that they don't have a vote, not next year, not in the lame duck, not in the year after. If the thing is not passable, the thing is finished. And for everyone who wants to dig in, and I hope it's everyone in this room, and you're going to feel even more motivated by the time you hear from my colleagues, there are great materials to get involved, the details of what I've talked about, long analysis, talking points, how to do a member of Congress meeting, Larry's Theater, simple op-eds, you name it, at tradewatch.org tradewatch.org, and exposethetpp.org. And hopefully you can, those addresses are in here, you can look at sort of some of the top line arguments because the first piece of business is to think here before you leave tonight, what five people are you going to tell about this tomorrow and aim them at your congressperson? Thank you. Last spring, President Obama got downright crabby toward Senator Elizabeth Warren and muckrakers like me. He was irked that we critics of his Trans-Pacific Partnership kept pointing out that this corporate power grab would directly undermine America's very sovereignty. Under TPP, multinational corporations would be allowed to bypass our courts and go to secretive, corporate-run international tribunals effectively empowered to roll back our nation's consumer, labor, environmental, and other laws that they don't like. They're making this stuff up, Obama wailed. No trade agreement is going to force us to change our laws. But on December 18th, the president very quietly repealed one of America's consumer laws in response to a legal complaint that corporations in Mexico and Canada had filed with an existing international tribunal. In effect, the corporations used this secretive autocratic tribunal set up by the World Trade Organization to force Congress and Obama to change U.S. law. So much for the untouchable sovereignty of we the people. And now, at the behest of global oligarchs and plutocrats, Obama is asking Congress to extend this outrageous veto power to thousands of private multinational giants in the 12 countries, from Australia to Vietnam, that would be part of his TPP deal. To sell it, he's the one making stuff up. Put simply, he declared in February, TPP will bolster our leadership abroad and support good jobs at home. This is Jim Hightower saying, put simply, that's hogwash. Research shows that TPP will cost our country another half a million jobs and increase inequality by, quote, redistributing income from labor to capital. You see, inequality doesn't just happen. It's caused by deliberate decisions and deliberate lies of corporate and political elites. Uh, was writing over a dissident voice and uh, talking about, he was actually quoting in an October 2015 article, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who won a Nobel Prize for being a brilliant economist, and Adam Hirsch wrote something that, that really hit me because my father was killed by the asbestos industry. He died of mesothelioma. 
and uh, he was exposed to asbestos in 1951 when they knew that it caused mesothelioma, but they didn't tell the workers. In fact, they didn't tell the companies that were buying their asbestos. So it was a, it was a secret that the asbestos industry knew. They'd known it since the mid-30s. So here, let me just share this with you. Imagine what would have happened if these provisions had been in place. Now, the, what the provisions that they're talking about are what are called investor state dispute settlements or settlement disputes, the ISDS. Part, these, it's a provision that you find in the TPP, the TTIP, in NAFTA, in the, the GATT that made the WTO, in the Korean Free Trade Agreement. In, you find it in all these agreements where basically if a corporation... If a country passes a regulation that causes a corporation to, to have to do business in a different way that causes them to lose money, they can sue the government. I'm frankly waiting for, you know, the Malaysian government or the Korean government or some, some government to sue us for over our minimum wage laws. But in any case, let's just listen to this. Imagine what would have happened if these provisions were in place when the lethal effects of asbestos were discovered. Rather than shutting down manufacturers and forcing them to compensate those who had been harmed, under ISDS, governments would have had to pay the manufacturers not to kill their citizens. Taxpayers would have been hit twice, first to pay for the health damage caused by the asbestos, and then to compensate manufacturers for their lost profits when the government stepped in to regulate a dangerous product. This is how insane these trade policies are, these trade deals. And, you know, add further to add further to that, this, this from uh, Lori Wallach's, you know, Global Trade Watch, uh, part of Public Citizen, Citizen.org, the group that Ralph Nader started back about 40, 50 years ago. And this is from a press release they sent out over the name of Nicholas Florco uh, on May 4th. As the Obama administration intensifies its efforts to persuade Congress to pass the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, new U.S. government data released today reveal an inconvenient truth. This is May 4th. It was yesterday. Which reveal an inconvenient truth about the, the Korea Free Trade Agreement, the FTA that served as the template for the TPP. The new data covering the first four years of that pact, this is the, the free trade deal with Korea that, that you know, we signed back six, eight years ago, six, seven years ago. The new data covering the first four years of the pact revealed that the U.S. goods trade deficit with Korea has more than doubled. Now, our, our trade deficit with Korea was supposed to go down as a result of signing a free trade agreement with them. But just like with every other single free trade agreement we've ever signed, our deficit our trade deficit went up. The increase in the U.S. trade deficit with Korea equals to the loss of more than 106,000 American jobs in the first four years of the Korea FTA. Census Bureau data show the outcomes of the Korea Pact are the opposite of the Obama administration's 2011 more exports, more jobs promises for the deal. The administration is now employing similar claims to try to sell the TPP to Congress and the American public. And the thing that really shocked me was just the, the opening sentence. As the Obama administration intensifies its efforts to persuade Congress to pass the TPP, you know, ellipsis. They're still pushing this thing? My prediction, after the election, and either before Thanksgiving or before Christmas, when nobody's paying attention and everybody's traveling and everybody's shopping and whatever, on the last minute of some congressional session at, at, you know, 15 minutes after midnight, they're going to pass the TPP. And most people aren't even going to know about it. And, and we're going to lose another 10, 20, 30,000 factories. And we're going to see a larger trade deficit. And our wages are going to go down even further. And more people are going to be thrown out of work. And more of the transnational corporations are going to make more money and the CEOs are going to make a fortune. And the billionaire class, at, at least that part of it that is tied to international trade, is going to be doing very well. Thank you very much. And the working class Americans in the United States, screw it again. Hey, this is how it works. You love your country.
I want to talk a little bit about the the leaks from the TTIP. I haven't gone through all the uh, documents. There are 280 pages of them. But uh, it is very much what we know from the TPP. The Americans are basically pushing the Europeans to lower their standards in terms of things like genetic, uh, like GMOs. Now, I don't want to uh, get into GMOs per se right now, but the idea is this dynamic is important. It could very well be that maybe sometime in the future, uh, unlikely, but possibly, uh, or, or, or let's just put it in, in the context of, let's say, I don't know, uh, Malaysia uh, with the TPP. They like to put lead in their candy, let's just say, hypothetically. And uh, they uh, want to uh, be able to sell their candy in America. But America says, hey, we don't want lead in our candy. Uh, and uh, the Malaysians say, well, we signed a deal and uh, you can't inhibit our ability to um, to profit off our very important candy business, which uh, is buoyed by lead. Uh, so in the <laughs> TTIP, I mean, I'm just saying that now. Uh, now, a lot of people say, well, GMOs are not uh, dangerous per se. So it's a different that's a bad analogy, uh, Sam. And um, there may be some truth to that. Um, the analogy, the dynamics, the same, but you're saying that um, the GMOs are not. Now, there was a um, a report last week from the World Health Organization, the cancer research arm of the World Health Organization announced that glyphosate the world's most widely used herbicide is probably carcinogenic to humans. They have like four levels, definitely carcinogenic, probably carcinogenic, possibly carcinogenic, not carcinogenic. So this is up there. Now, uh, just weirdly, um, Rob Fraley, chief technology officer at the agrochemical company Monsanto, said that the um, International Agency for Research on Cancer was just cherry-picking data. We're outraged at this assessment, he said in a statement. Now, um, obviously, the International Agency for Research on Cancer has an incentive to find things that have cancer. <laughs> Otherwise, they shut them down, right? Uh, or, or maybe not. But um, now the reason why Monsanto is upset about this is because they sell much of the world's glyphosate. And the reason why glyphosate sells so much is because Roundup Ready corn, also a product by Monsanto, dominates the American, at the very least, supply of corn. And they have a patent on this corn. And so even when there's genetic materials that blow onto somebody else's property, which is inevitable, uh, they own the patent there and they can sue and basically push everybody out of business. Now, this isn't to say that the corn itself is unhealthy. However, when we say that... Um, cars that we shouldn't build more highways okay uh, it isn't because necessarily cars are unhealthy it is because they require fossil fuels and it's not so much that if you drink fossil fuels because no one would drink fossil fuels so it's not that fossil fuels are unhealthy it's the burning of fossil fuels that are unhealthy and not just that they're unhealthy they have another implication they create global warming. So if you have a product that only one company can make in the world because they own the patent, and that is actually their business plan, and in the production of that product, they have a complementary product which goes hand in hand to it that happens to cause cancer. Uh, then there is something fundamentally wrong with that first product. 
then the idea that Europe might say, hey, we don't want to allow GMO corn, for instance, because it necessarily means that we're going to be using a tremendous amount of glyphosate or glyphosate or this stuff that is probably carcinogenic. Not that the GMO necessarily has a, an issue, but that it is a package deal. And if we allow a little bit in, then we're going to get a lot because that's the way this happens. So that's an issue for the Europeans. And then on top of that, it's not just, it's not just that. I mean, there are a whole host of, of other issues. The group says the U.S. wants to, the EU, or I should say the documents, show that the U.S. wants the EU to drop its so-called precautionary principle, which is, I think, maybe the basis for GMO, but the basis for far many other products, it's pharmaceuticals. A, yes, it's an entirely for, different for, regulatory um, framework. For uh, medical devices, for a whole bunch of things. In other words, in this country... The bar in which to allow for a product to enter the market is pretty low. You need to show demonstrably that this thing is dangerous. In Europe, the burden of proof is on the producer. You need to show that it's demonstrably not dangerous. That's an oversimplification, but that's basically what it is. And this inhibits products that get made in the U.S. because we have lower standards. Uh, there are other issues, too, in terms of, like, environmental issues. Um, they want the U.S. to loosen environmental and consumer protections, broadly speaking. They, uh, there is a chapter on sanitary and physio phytosanitary measures and that has to do apparently with gmos although there's no direct um the words gmos are not used in it um the u.s proposal indicates their pressure to get rid of trade barriers uh for those uh gmos uh the global low-level presence initiative which was an american-backed initiative to gain global acceptance of agricultural exports containing traces of unauthorized genetically modified organisms. Now, what's problematic with that? I don't know. Six years down the road, those traces get blown into the fields of some non-genetically modified, and we already know what the legal, legal framework has been set up in this country. And if we impose our copyright and patent laws on the rest of the country, eventually that's how you get there. Um. The group, uh, this is the uh, group that, uh, the Greenpeace that released the documents, showed, uh, says that the, uh, shows that the Americans are proposing to allow corporations to, quote, petition for the repeal of a regulation if it was, quote, more burdensome than necessary to achieve its objective. Now, obviously, <laughs> there's trouble. How do you determine whether or not a, uh, a regulation is more burdensome than necessary to achieve its objective. Of course, you go to a, a panel, a panel of three industry lawyers who, after they stop sitting on this panel, will go back and work for these companies and they will determine whether or not. Seems like the regulation is, uh, is more burdensome than necessary. The documents also show that Europeans had proposed allowing certain environmental standards to be deemed technical barriers to trade. Things like, hey, we want to deforest your forests. <laughs> or, hey, we want to drill uh, in the Thames River. Or, uh, you know, that type of stuff. Uh, the text included trade rules that could be used against by local programs that support local clean energy jobs in two dozen American states. So it goes both ways. Um, so hopefully, you know, because of the nature of, of EU politics, this may be the end for the TTIP. And then the question is, 
will it be the end? Will that hurt the TPP? I don't know. And, um, you know, it's possible that the TPP gets um, passed in the lame duck session. I think that is its best chance for passage. Because if we do have a President Clinton, although I don't trust her to maintain her promise to veto the bill, uh, the or the ratification of the TPP, my understanding is it can't be renegotiated. In other words, right now it's all been signed. And what has been signed has to be uh, ratified. And there's no room for American lawmakers to say, but we want X, Y, or Z here. That's my understanding. That may not be the case, but that's my understanding. So it cannot change from what Hillary Clinton has already said is wrong with it. But let's assume for the moment that Hillary Clinton says, I didn't read that other page. My bad. And that page basically is what makes it okay. A recent article about Barack Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership opened with this sunny headline. Trade pact would lift U.S. income, study says. But wait, a study by whom? It comes from the Washington-based Peterson Institute for International Economics. What's that? We're not told, even though that information is key to understanding PIIE's upbeat take on the TPP trade scheme. The Institute is largely funded by major global corporations that would gain enormous new power over consumers, workers, and the very sovereignty of America if Congress rubber-stamps this raw deal. In fact, many of the multinational giants financing the Institute were among the 500 corporate powers that were literally allowed to help write the 2,000-page agreement, including Caterpillar, Chevron, IBM, GE, and General Motors. And get this, the Peterson Institute itself helped write this scam it's now hyping. Is this Peterson guy some sort of unbiased scholar? Hardly. Pete Peterson, a Wall Street billionaire, is one of the 400 richest people in the U.S. and the founding chairman of his eponymous institute. He's also a reactionary anti-public spending ideologue who was Nixon's commerce secretary. Hailed by the establishment as one of, quote, the most influential billionaires in U.S. politics, he uses that influence and his fortune to demonize such people's programs as Social Security and to push policies to enthrone the billionaire class over the rest of us. TPP would be his ultimate political coup against us commoners. This is Jim Hightower saying, All you need to know about TPP is that it was negotiated in secrecy with global corporate elites while we consumers, workers, and all others were locked out. Remember, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Next up, we have Kevin Zeese. I think I met you in 2009. 
through. Um, we were trying to break up big banks. Kevin is an extraordinary organizer, uh, a lawyer, also a co-director of Popular Resistance. His leadership, and along with Margaret and others, in the net neutrality fight was really critical. In, with net neutrality, Kevin led some of the organizing, occupying the FCC. And these are commissioners who aren't used to getting this kind of personal attention. I sometimes think that we're in this moment of a sleeping giant waking up with like one paw being net neutrality and one paw being Black Lives Matter and one leg being the TPP. <laughs> Kevin's involved in all of it, so I want to hear what you're saying. Well, my job is to put this into a, a larger context and to really show that we're, this is part of a, kind of the battle of our times, the, the epic battle of whether we're going to have democracy where people rule or corporate government where the transnational corporations rule. That is the battle. And there's many fronts to that. Uh, we see it in the elections with such a small percentage of people funding elections. We see it with Citizens United. We see it in, across the, the globe. We saw it in Greece when the bankers insisted Greece bow to it, get down to its knees and, and grovel and, and live a, a, a stranded life without a real democracy, despite their vote. They were ignored. So we see this battle happening uh, all over the world and all over the country. And this, the TPP is relevant to that, and these other two other trade agreements I'll talk about briefly that President Obama has also been negotiating, is relevant to that because it really undermines what little democracy we have left. If we lose this battle to stop the TPP, uh, we see all three branches of government uh, hurt significantly. And it's interesting, during the, during the fast track uh, debate, when we were, we actually were kind of occupying Capitol Hill too, we were, had a little encampment up there as well, we had to uh, have, uh, we weren't allowed to sleep though, so we had to take rotational uh, shifts, although some people did sleep. I think, I think under the table or something. Um, uh, but we, uh, while, we, while that battle was going on, you know, one of the issues that President Obama was misleading us about was that this will not affect legislation. It's not going to change things. You know, and during that, while it was going on, the, the WTO was ruling against the United States in a, a, loss, a, a trade tribunal fight uh, over a cool country of origin labeling. A very popular law. People want to know where their food comes from. They don't want to, you know, as, as Laurie was talking about, the, the shrimp cesspools that shrimp grow up in. Uh, we don't want to have that in our food. And uh, we, we were, the United States was losing that. And they were basically told, you're going to get big fines unless you repeal that law. And so what Congress do in the midst of fast track, they repeal the law. And Obama signs it. And he still says it doesn't affect our legislation. So Congress and the executive are crippled by that. The reality is that any law passed in the public interest, whether it's to protect the people, whether to protect workers, uh, the planet, climate change, uh, any law passed for those kinds of purposes is open to challenge by foreign corporations, by investors. That's what the, that's what the investors are, are foreign corporations. Of course, domestic corporations don't have that right, so already domestic corporations are at our disadvantage. Of course, uh, communities don't have that right to sue if uh, 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 an investor's uh, a foreign corporation comes in and pollutes a community. Consumers don't have that if we're poisoned by Vietnamese shrimp. Unions don't have it if, if their unions are destroyed. Workers don't have it if their wages go down. We have no rights. Only the corporations and the government have the rights to use these tribunals. It's unlike the federal court system where the federal court system, a single person can sue a corporation. You know, they can get a lawyer uh, based on a contingency fee, so it costs them nothing unless they, uh, they, they, they win. We get a jury of our peers. We get a real judge, not a rotating corporate lawyer. Uh, and unfortunately, the federal court system gets weakened because of these trade tribunals, these investor state dispute panels. And of course, there's no appeal from those trade tribunal decisions. Uh, so we are stuck with them. So all three branches of government get weakened. Our democracy get weakened, our sovereignty gets weakened, the corporations all get stronger. And this comes at a time when it's being recognized that we may not even be a democracy any longer. I always call it a mirage democracy managed with managed elections uh, because the management ensures that Wall Street has two candidates and no one else is really allowed to compete. 
they can get on the ballot in some states. They struggle for a hard time to get a third party getting on the ballot, but the corporate media won't cover them. The the money that pollutes our pollutes our uh, our elections won't be coming to them. And so we really have a kind of a, a fake democracy. And uh, people, in fact, researchers now from multiple universities have done various research projects that show that prove we're an oligarchy more than we're a democracy. We have uh, Supreme Court judges, we have former presidents, we have Jimmy Carter, we have uh, senators like Dick Durbin uh, saying that there's no democratic legitimacy anymore. That's pretty serious stuff. And here we are now facing this to drive that down further and to drive wages down further at a time when 51% of, uh, of, Amer- of working Americans are earning $30,000 a year or less. Now we have to compete with you know, Vietnam, 65 cents, and Peru's $1.50 an hour. Workers cannot survive that. And that's what we're, what we're going into with, this, uh, with this, this, these, these corporate trade agreements. And it also has to be put in the context of the global battle that the United States is engaged in for hegemony of the world, to be the sole power. It's not a coincidence that TPP is being negotiated at the same time that we are shifting 52% of our Navy over to the Asian Pacific and the Asian pivot. It's not a coincidence that we are negotiating the Transatlantic Agreement at the same time that NATO is ringing Russia uh, with military uh, bases and with missiles uh, pointed at Moscow. This is part of a much bigger issue, and there are three trade agreements, as I mentioned, uh, earlier, there's the one we're talking about tonight, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There's also the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, which is with Europe. And the other one that's least talked about, the, uh, the, the um, TISA agreement, uh, which deals with uh, services, which is 80% of our economy. Fifty nations are part of TISA. So it's a, this is a web of corporate law written for, by the corporations and for the corporations. And if, we get, if this is allowed to be put into place, it's going to be a multi-generational effort to correct this mistake. It's going to be the battle of the century. This, and it, we're already in this battle. If we stop it now, it has a totally different impact. If we stop the TPP, it's very unlikely the transatlantic, which is having troubles already in Europe, it's very unlikely TISA. We'll get forward. Winning this conflict now, this political conflict now, has the potential impact to stop all three of these treaties. Um, and it's not alone. Another thing I want to mention, just that, and you can Google this if you want, because I don't want to go into it in great detail now. Don't have the time. But out of the World Economic Forum um, comes this Global Redesign Initiative. Has anyone heard of the Global Redesign Initiative? Just curious. You know, that's the same response we got four years ago when we asked, has anyone heard of the TPP? They're good at hiding stuff. They're good at hiding stuff. Of course, now if I ask anyone who's heard of the TPP, everybody's hands goes up, right? So we, we gradually learn. But if you Google the Global Redesign Project, Mark and I did a, we have a radio show, and we did an hour-long interview with two academics from Boston who've done a deep investigation of this, have put out a report going through the Global Redesign Initiative. What it basically is is the elites uh, working uh, to minimize the nation-state. Uh, they want, they believe nation states are kind of slow and they're bureaucratic and, you know, they, they can't make decisions. And uh, corporations are much more efficient. They can make decisions. They can get things done. They can move to where the cheaper workers are, move to where the cheaper resources are, much more efficient for our economy. And they want to turn the UN into a hybrid corporate nation body. So that's just some of the, I'm not going further into it. If you want to go to our radio show, clearingthefogradio.org. Fog, by the way, stands for Forces of Greed. Clearing the Fog Radio. Uh, and look up the uh, Global Redesign Initiative. You can hear an hour discussion of that by the two people in the United States who know most about it. But that's also part of this overall conflict we're in of people, power versus corporate power. And that is the issue of our era. Now, I just want to say on the Trade and Services Agreement, TISA, that um, this one has some far-reaching effects. I said 80% of the U.S. economy. And, of course, this hasn't been seen yet. There's been leaks, thanks to WikiLeaks, but we haven't really seen this yet. So uh, we're, we're, we, but we know that how these trade agreements go and what direction they're trying to move things. And really, all three of these trade agreements have one thing in common, privatization, commodification. 
minimize state-supported state-owned enterprises, move away from public good to private profit. And that's really what the, uh, what the TISA is going to do. Postal Service, already under great stress by a Congress that's trying to destroy it and privatize it. Uh, people maybe hope, know about this uh, law that was passed to supposedly modernize the Postal Service, um, where they got this crazy requirement that they have to pay the health care benefits for retired postal workers 75 years in advance. So postal workers have not been born yet, and the Postal Service is stuck creating a fund for postal workers that are going to retire 75 years from now. No other corporation, no other agencies ever had that kind of requirement. What's that designed for? That's designed to fatten the calf. So when Office Depot or Staples or Federal Express or uh, UPS or some new corporation takes it over, they will have a massive, massive uh, amount of money to spend. And of course, they won't be required to keep that for health benefits for semi pensioners in the future. Uh, they'll be able to spend it however they want. But that's what the kind of trade and service agreement is going to try to do. Push us to have a one-way street, trade and services, toward privatization. And once you go to privatization, you can't go back. That's what the, that's, that's what the agreement is trying to do. So this is really a corporate coup d'etat. Uh, the, all these three agreements, the triad agreements that Obama has been pushing uh, and negotiating in secret. Uh, thankfully, there are some leaks that come out in the process, and because of the fast-track fight, we're able to read the TPP now. They didn't want to let us see it now, by the way. That was a compromise they made in order to pass the fast-track through Congress. We wouldn't be reading it now if it hadn't been for that, So, uh, unless, of course, there were more leaks. But um, that was because there was a successful, aggressive fast-track fight. Well, we didn't stop fast-track. We certainly opened the doors up. Now we know what we're dealing with. So we're in this crossroads moment. Crossroads moment that will affect our children and grandchildren, that will affect our daily lives, that we must fight to win. And it's this moment of transformation. Is it going to be a future where we regain our power, build our power, move toward a real people-powered democracy, or is it going to be a future where the corporations have a noose around our neck and control every aspect of our lives. That's what we're fighting. And it means that as this happens, we need to rise. We need to rise strong. We need to rise with confidence that we can win because we can win. Despite the oligarch nature of our, our government, we've pushed this into an election year. That makes it much harder for them, makes it a better position for us. And so we can win this. I urge all of you to make this your top priority for the next six months, and it takes longer the next year and a half. If we win in the next six months, they'll delay. We'll have to continue to come back. This is the battle of this epic struggle of our times. And if we win it, it shows tremendous people power, defeating you know, massive mega corporations who are trying to grab incredible power. We just heard clips featuring a speech by Lori Wallach on why and how we must stop these trade deals, Jim Hightower on how these deals exacerbate inequality, Tom Hartman on how these trade agreements can prevent governments from protecting citizens from harm, the majority report on new leaks about the TTIP involving countries across the Atlantic, Jim Hightower on who is behind Obama's push for the TPP, and finally we just heard a speech by Kevin Zies on the importance of on-the-ground activism to fight all of the battles of our day. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Marty, uh, the trans woman uh, calling from Madison, Wisconsin. I was listening to podcast 1008, uh, the voicemail messages, and specifically the one from Wade. And... I just had to respond. The assertion that um, 
quote, big government um, doesn't doesn't affect people's lives. It's just ludicrous. I'll give you two examples. Um, one, I was saved from actually being jobless because of the Obama's administration's their policy on um, social security and uh, gender because my employer was telling me because my social security my gender on uh, my social security account and my driver's license and birth certificate didn't match and if those couldn't be matched up that they would fire me and my protection came from the Obama administration and the changes that have been made since. That's literally kept me from being fired from a job. Secondly, if you want to think back to pre-Obama, I'll give you an example of um, marriage equality, the fact that it wasn't passed or in effect in uh, Florida. Uh, Lisa Pond, her and her partner were on vacation in Florida, I believe, and uh, she was playing basketball with her kids and, and uh, collapsed. And she died alone because her partner didn't have access because they were a lesbian couple and couldn't get married. So I, I really want to tell a way to uh, stick his white privilege because I, I, I have to guess that he's a, a white, cis, heterosexual male because my God, the amount of privilege that was spewed in that voicemail was unbelievable. I hate to pull that card out, but it's, it's, it's true. It's to believe that voting doesn't have an effect on people's lives is just, it shows an amount of privilege that is just, you're at the top of the food chain and you can't, you can't see your own privilege. Hi, Jay. It's James here from Brisbane in Australia. Thank you very much for reading my message out on your podcast the other week. It was very much appreciated. I just wanted to wade in to the discussion regarding FedEx and the treatment of the drivers and what you went through. It sounds alarmingly like the cab industry. Um, a lot of people, um, a lot of drivers, you know, spend $500,000 on a license. That's just to own a cab. And then other drivers can do what I do, which is what's called a bailment agreement. So that basically I get a percentage of whatever's on the meter. Um, but I don't have to add insurance or maintenance or fuel. Um, there's a second tier between us. What's called a set pay. Essentially, you pay a set amount each month, hence set pay. And you have to contribute a little bit to the fuel, insurance and maintenance of the car. But... Once you've paid that, whatever is you make on top of that is yours. But we're all beholden to uh, to the booking companies themselves. Uh, we're pretty much treated like employees, and the work we do is, can be dangerous, can be thankless. And I just wanted, if any other cab drivers listen to your show, I just wanted to know what they thought as well. All right, thank you very much, Jay, and enjoy your show. I very much enjoy it. Thank you. Bye. Hey Jay, this is Josh in Dallas, and I just wanted to encourage all your listeners to donate to your program by way of saying, I just signed up for a monthly $5 donation. If you can afford it, it's well worth it. I feel really good about finally signing up. I've been listening to your program for about probably four years, and I've been meaning to actually sign up for donations since before Christmas when you were had that big donation push going. Um, that just shows you how long it takes some people. It took me five months to get around to actually sitting down and doing it, but... If you can afford it, it's, you know, it comes out to about a buck a show. It's a really, it's money well spent. And I think I have a kind of a unique perspective on why that is and why your show is so good. Uh, back in 2009 and 2010, I worked for probably the only progressive radio station that's ever existed in the state of Texas. Uh, it was called Rational Radio. And as you know, Jay, you listen to hours and hours of programs to put your show together. You know, when you're putting out a radio show or a podcast every single day, sometimes it's a slow news day and some of the stuff you have to cover is just crap. Sometimes the content is just not there. But 
that's why your show is so important because you go through and pull out the very best that's out there and your show is invaluable for getting the unique progressive perspective that is lacking in the major media so thanks again jay for everything you do the show is awesome keep up the great work and thanks Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, for several weeks, maybe even months by now, I've been telling you about our new strategy on Facebook. And before you you know, have your eyes glaze over and tune out, this is not a behind-the-scenes boring sort of thing. This is actually pretty core to our mission here. You know, as you know, my goal is to compile and amplify as much excellent, thought-provoking content as I can and get it into as many eyes and ears as I can. And we do that not just through the show, but through our social media outlets as well. And that is where you guys actually play a huge role in helping us spread the word of that great content. So our Facebook page and Twitter feed is not just self-promotional stuff. We are pushing out the same kind of content that we put in the show in the hopes that you will help spread that even further so that more people can see it. So the new strategy that I came up with recently has to do with the fact that Facebook has a gigantic financial incentive to not show you what we post on our Facebook page. Even when you like the page, you clearly want to see what we have to say. Facebook is there to not let that happen because what they want is for us to pay them to boost our posts or pay for, uh, you know, paid ads on Facebook, that sort of thing. And then, and only then do they really give you a good chance of having your content be seen. Now, luckily they do allow for one workaround and that is what I am imploring you to do. If you, if you like our Facebook page already, or if you like what I'm saying and you want to get involved, then this is how to do it. You don't just click the like button on our Facebook page once. You click it a second time and confirm that you want to see our content first. That means that what we post will actually go into your feed and it will actually be shown to you. Now, to be clear, like I said, a lot of what we post on Facebook is the same stuff that we put in the show. So if you listen regularly to the show, then what's on that page is probably going to be something that you've seen or heard, but we put it in a different format. You know, we have the videos of clips or we have excerpted quotes that have become very popular and get spread like wildfire. Uh, And then we even just have our, you know, little featured clips, you know, just audio clips that have been pulled and all of that stuff can go out. And if you see it, and then help us spread it by you know liking it and sharing it, then more people beyond the audience of the show is going to get to hear that. So that's what I've been talking about for a little while. I think it's going well. People have been responding. People have definitely been clicking that button and getting our content. And the one little update I have for you is that I think that things at Facebook just got worse. You know, they, they constantly tweak their algorithm, you know, a little bit this way or a little bit that way. And word on the street, basically, is that things were bad and they just got worse when it comes to pages like Best of the Left trying to reach their followers. It just went from bad to worse, which means the strategy that I'm trying to uh, employ is that much more important right now. And secondly, it's also important to remember what it means for Facebook to constantly change its algorithm and for us to have to strategize on how to reach our audience when it should be the easiest thing in the world, but it just isn't. It means that a lot of time and effort has to go into that, uh, which brings me back to the last call we just heard from Josh from Dallas, uh, you know, very kindly asking you to help support the show. I would just like to second that motion because the only reason I know that things just went from bad to worse on Facebook is that Amanda Hoffman, who I thank in each episode for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, told me, which means that she has to read up on that stuff and do the research and figure out how 
to work the system and strategize how to make the best use possible that we can of our social media outlets. And it is not just a thing that you can throw stuff up and see how it goes. It takes a lot of work, a lot of effort, and most importantly, a lot of time. And this is not by a long shot Amanda's main job or anything. Like, she does this in her spare time, and she is compensated not nearly what she is worth for the time she puts into it. But, you know, we're trying to cobble it together, and things are going okay. But I just wanted to give you a sense of what it means when you support the show, what actually happens behind the scenes. We're going to keep producing the show as you know and hopefully love it, but we're always working behind the scenes trying to figure out what we can do better. How can we use all the tools at our disposal in a better, more effective way? And the only way to get ahead and really take the time to do it right is to take the time to do it right. And time in a very real sense, equals money. So when you support the show, that money literally gets turned into time that we have available to spend making the show and the various outlets that we control from the show as good and as productive and as useful as we possibly can. So huge thanks to Josh for his support and for urging all of the rest of you to support the show. If you would like to contribute, just go to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives and occasionally thrives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our stories and forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing Can't see past our own sad stories and forget who it is we're